Let me try and paint the scene for you. It's um, rush hour commute. People are on their way to school. People are on their way to work. Uh, they're on a, on a familiar road. It's a road that uh, has a few curves, has just a few hills. There's a bit of fog, though, that's come down on this particular morning. But again, because it's a familiar road and you've driven it so many times, you know, no one's really bothering to slow down. No one's really bothering to, to take any extra precautions at all. They're just moving on. Well, the first accident takes place just on the other side of a rise. Okay? The police are called. They're on the scene. Flashers are put into place and, and flags and uh, flares and, and such. Um, then there's the second accident. Again, the fog is thick, just over the horizon. There's the second accident. And then the third one. And then the fourth one. And the police can simply cannot get their, the, the driver's attention in this morning commute on this seemingly familiar road in this fog. And so in desperation, they actually begin to take up the cones in hand and throw them at the cars, trying desperately to get their attention, trying to stop this carnage that is building up on the other side of this hill, this pile-up. And no one is listening. No one is slowing down. They're just plowing on right ahead into this chaos and carnage right there in front of them. Now, this is not such a fanciful picture. I drew a lot of that scenario from a news article I read some years ago of, of, of an accident that took place in a pile-up that took place just very much like that. It is hardly a fanciful thing at all. You can read such things, sad occurrences, in the news all the time. It is anything but fanciful. And I would add also, it is also very much of the feel of the text that we are about to read here, Jesus' pleas to us that we would listen, that we would hear. Matthew chapter 11. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me there. Matthew chapter 11, we are picking up where we left off last week, moving in this series through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 11, verse 16, reading on through verse 24. Matthew 11, starting in verse 16, reading on through verse 24. If you're trying to find Matthew's Gospel, that's the first of the books of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, John. We are in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Let us pay heed to God's word, starting in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 11. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him! a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day. But I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, these are strong words. We ask that you would help us to hear them. They are hard words. And every one of us in some way or another has a hard heart. And we, in some respect, don't want to hear this. We would just as soon I had skipped this text. We'd been able to skip this text. Move on to something a little bit more palatable. But we know we can't do that. Uh, this is your word. Uh, as we often say here, and rightly so, uh, it is trustworthy so we can stand upon it. It is also authoritative so we have to kneel under it. And so we do. And we ask that you would give us ears with which to hear. Every single one of us in this room in some way, in some way needs to hear what you are saying here just as surely as the people there that day within earshot needed to hear you and what you were saying. Oh, would you be gracious to us. Help us hear and to understand. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this is the second of a, if you can call it a two-part series. It's a second of a two-part series. Uh, Jesus, how he responds to our responses. Uh, last week we looked at the first part of, of, of this. Um, I was telling you the story of how the postal service and its eminent wisdom has somehow managed to confuse the identities of uh, our son and, and me. They can't seem to distinguish us one from another. Um, and uh, that didn't raise that question that we were putting there before the house, so to speak, last week, and that is, how does God treat us? Is he able to distinguish us one from another? Does he treat us as individuals? Does he treat us as persons? And yes, the answer is, he does. Absolutely so. And we see that reflected here uh, in John chapter 11. This is what we looked at last week. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but that's verses 1 through 15. Uh, that's where we were uh, last week, and we saw that ha Jesus engages with John in a very personal, individual way. John is responding to Jesus, struggling with his faith, struggling with doubt. Jesus responds to John in a very personal, individual way, in compassion and great patience with John the Baptist. Well, that idea of Jesus' fitted response to us and our responses uh, to him continues on this week in what we just read in the, you know, this part of John, excuse me, Matthew 11, but with a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a difference. The, the theme is the same, but the response is completely different. The, the response that Jesus is responding to is completely different. Here Jesus is not addressing uh, someone struggling with their faith, someone struggling with doubt. Here he is addressing individuals who are settled in their unbelief. And that then necessitates a completely different response because that's a completely different response to him. Now, maybe that surprises you. Maybe it surprises you. You're here this morning and you're like, whoa, uh, people responded that way then to Jesus. In some way, maybe that, that surprises you. Or maybe you're just surprised that the gospel writers would be so honest, so candid uh, to record a response like that in the text. Uh, preserving it for us all these many, many years. Well, that is, though, their response. The response of so many 
in, in Jesus' day. And his response to them is completely different in, in many respects than his response to John. And again, that takes us back to this, this theme that we're seeing here, at least in this portion of John 11, that Jesus' response to us uh, is, is fitted to our response to him. Jesus' response to us is fitted to our response to him, and that's what we need to wrestle with. That's what we need to, to consider and to consider with great care, especially when you look at this response you see in this text. The, the warning that is given, that's part one, and the woe that is pronounced, and that's part two. The warning that's given and then the woe that's pronounced. And oh, we need to, to pay heed to, to both of these. So let's look at this, these in turn. First, the, the warning that's given. We see that in verses 16 through 19. I'm going to read it again. What? But, now you see that just right there, there's a shift. A shift in mood, a shift in tone, a shift in response to a response because it's something different. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here's what Jesus is saying. In our unbelief, we are like sulking brats. That may go down hard, but that's what Jesus is saying. We are like sulking brats. Now let me unpack that if I may. As he does this so often, Jesus grabs hold of an everyday sight that, that, that all there can identify with to then drive his point home. And here's the everyday sight. It's a, it's, it's a marketplace game. It's a familiar uh, scenario. Village life in the ancient world, in that part of the world in particular, you don't have a lot going on. I mean, you've basically got two things. The high points on the annual calendar are weddings and funerals, okay? And, and, and that's a big deal in a, in a small village. And people look forward to it. It's a big thing. Well, maybe not so much the funerals, but, but you, know, you know what I mean. It's a, it's a big thing, a big event there in, in the, that village context. And children being children gravitate towards things, such things and then afterwards begin to pretend. Let's play wedding. Let's play funeral. And, you know, I'm going to take this part, and you play this part, and da-da-da, you know, and that sort of thing. And so here's the scenario that Jesus is, is just hearkening his hearer's imagination to, and it's a group of children, and, and one says, hey, let's play wedding, this group over here. Let's play wedding. And the other group responding to that says, I don't want to play wedding. That's not the game I want to play. I hate the dancing. Let's not play wedding. They say, let's play funeral. To which the first script in response says, I hate playing funeral. I hate the dirge. Okay. I don't like to dance. I don't like to dirge. Nobody plays. They're just sulking, stuck in their brattiness. Okay? This is not that hard to, to imagine, not too hard to envision children getting caught, if you will, in, in something like this. And Jesus, in, in painting this picture, exposes the hearts of his hearers. He says, you are like these uh, sulking brats. You are like these children in a snit. And let me tell you why. Because you refuse John. John comes with the dirge, if you will. 
John the Baptist, the man that he's spoken of and encouraged and, and spoken well to and spoken well of, and we looked at that last week, he says, John the Baptist came and in a sense was the dirge. He, he fasted, he lived a life of poverty, his message was that of repentance. Repent. And you refused him. Jesus comes with the dance, if you will, playing the pipe, if you will. He comes with the message of the king and the coming of the kingdom. He comes authenticating his, his message in, in the way he proclaimed it and then with his mighty works and miracles. Oh, and then whom he demonstrates and proclaims these things before are the outcasts and the rejected of society. And, and you rejected that. You refused to be satisfied. Nothing would, nothing would do for you. You wouldn't dance. You wouldn't play wedding. You wouldn't do the dirge. You refuse the funeral. You're impossible to please. And that's the warning Jesus has given. That's the warning. This is the nature of unbelief to respond to the message of the gospel as a sulking brat. Now, why would we do that? Here's why. Because it's not our game. It's not my game. I didn't get to pick wedding. I didn't get to play, pick funeral. And just simply because I didn't get to pick, I don't want to play. Have you ever, certainly you can think of children responding in this way, and we do as adults in many respects as well. It's not our game. We are in control, and so we won't play. Okay, let me take it from the children in the marketplace um, to a different way of projecting this out. Politicians entrenched in their positions. Imagine this scenario, and it doesn't matter what level of, of, of politics we're talking about. It can happen at the local level, our city council, or at the state level, our legislature, or at the national level with the Congress. It doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter where or when. This is just something that applies to politics forever and amen. Okay, Where you have an issue on the table, and one side comes up with a solution that's actually pretty good. But the other side refuses to hear it, refuses to even touch it. Why? Because it's their idea. It's their idea and not ours, so they will get the credit and not us. No discussion. Gridlock. Sound familiar? Yeah, maybe so. Okay, so what Jesus is telling us here is that's like us. When we respond in unbelief, we are like stubborn politicians or sulking brats. That's what he's telling us here. The, the gospel, you see, this is what we're responding to, this, this message. The gospel is a two-part message. There's two things to hear, the, the dirge and the dance. The, the first part is, you know, your heart the, and your condition, your situation is far worse than you ever dared to imagine or fear. Part one. Part two. In Christ, God loves you more than you dared to ever imagine or dream. That's the message of the gospel. But you see, that message, to hear that, to heed that, to embrace that means you lose control. It's not your game. You see, what this means to embrace this to accept this means there's no deserving now. He owes you nothing. 
There's no deserving. He owes you nothing. Oh, and what else is that? That means you can make no demands. You can make no demands of one from whom, well, when he deserves you nothing. You deserve nothing. You've earned nothing. Ours is then but to yield and to trust. Again, you see, it's not our game. We don't get to pick. It's not us in control. This then is, is, is the message that Jesus then has is to the degree that we are rejecting that, that message. He's giving us this kind of warning saying, friend, you are responding like a child in a snit or a group of children sulking, unwilling to play, unwilling to hear, unwilling to heed. Well, that warning, though, that he gives then leads to this pronouncement of a woe. So if you didn't like that, now hang on. Here comes more. Verses 20 and following. But this is Jesus speaking here. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, there's a lot here that we need to think about and to really get the feel of what Jesus is saying we need to unpack. So, woe. What does it mean to pronounce a woe? We don't really talk in that language today. What is When Jesus is, says there, uh, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, and, and by, by inference to Capernaum as well, what does he mean? There's two things to this. There's two elements to this pronouncement of a woe by Jesus and the prophets that, that preceded him. And, and the first part is anger. The first part is, is, is an anger. It is his holy wrath. Not like ours, an unholy wrath. But, but a holy wrath reflecting the fact that what is his just due has been denied. Okay? But there's a second element to it. It's not either or, it's both. His anger, there's that element, and then a lament. A deep, profound sadness and grief for what is and should have been a sense of loss. It's both. In that woe, there's that expression of both the anger and the lament. And that, that's what's behind Jesus' words when he says, woe to you, and then these cities. Well, then that takes us to the, the next thing, and that is, well, why, okay, that's what it means. Why did this come? Why is he saying this to these particular cities, these particular uh, communities. Well, again, we, let's take a step back and consider the cities and communities we're talking about. So, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum are all cities and communities that are nearby, where he is, in the Galilee area, and also well-known. And every one of these places, as Matthew tells us, are cities and communities where Jesus performed most of his mighty works and miracles. And the people responded to him by rejecting him and his message and being completely unwilling to repent. On the whole, you have some exceptions to that, 
But on the whole, that was the response. All right. That's the, those are the cities that are known and nearby. Then you have these cities that are also known, but not so nearby because they're ancient cities from, from long, long ago. Tyre and Sidon would be two. Uh, these were two cities uh, north of there, northwest if I remember correctly, that um, were, were condemned repeatedly by the Old Testament prophets for their Baal worship. And by the way, part of Baal worship had to do with, and this is really horrific, but I'm not, talking about, not speaking metaphorically, but, but like really blood and everything, child sacrifice. And that's the kind of thing you're, you're talking about when you're dealing with Baal worship in the, the ancient times. Okay? And so Tyre and Sidon is part of what they're known for, and why, one of the reasons they were condemned, as they were by the Old Testament prophets. And then he mentioned Sodom. Well, you know, remember Sodom and Gomorrah back in, way back in Genesis from centuries before? Um, a place that's just known as like a byword for, for wickedness and rebellion against God. Uh, then you have um, not just, you have one more, it's not mentioned, there's an allusion here to it in that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah and he, in a reference to Babylon. And Babylon is it's a reputation of an empire it was known for its pride and self-sufficiency. I don't need God. Okay, so you've got these ancient cities, these ancient places and communities and empire in one case, and you've got, you've got that group, and you've got this group of the nearby and known, and Jesus is equating the two. Which had to have just been absolutely shocking to his hearers. Just absolutely mortifying to his hearers. But the reason is, is because those nearby and known communities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Capernaum, by the way, was his adopted hometown. Several instances in Matthew we've, we've read of things going on there. They had all the evidence they could have ever wanted of who he is and what he'd come to be and to do. And it was never enough. Never enough like a black hole. Nothing would do. Nothing was enough. And the principle that Jesus is pressing on here, the principle that is at stake, is that we are accountable for what we know. We are accountable before God, before what, for what we know. So the more you know of the Gospel the more you are accountable to respond accordingly to it. That's what Jesus is laying out here in front of us. I, I know that's sobering. I know it's hard. And maybe it's got an edge, but that's exactly what he's saying here. And that's what impels him. So he gives this warning, right, the first part, and that then causes the pronouncement of this woe. So what do we learn about this? What do we learn here about the, 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 the nature of, of unbelief and its power? Unbelief, a dynamic in play when it comes to unbelief, is not just the absence of something, but the presence of something else. Unbelief is not just the absence of something, but it's the presence of something else. The presence of something that is so powerful, it's causing us to refuse to yield, to refuse to give, to refuse to accept, to embrace, to hear, and to heed the gospel. There's a power to unbelief. Now, 
please don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's not a place for asking questions. That's not what I'm saying. There is a place for asking questions. There's a place for asking good questions and demanding, insisting and demanding good answers. Absolutely. Jesus himself tells us that the the, the way to summarize the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is absolutely a place for asking the question. But here's the thing. Very often, there are questions behind the questions, or there's stuff behind the doubt, behind the skepticism, that has nothing to do with misinformation or misunderstanding. It has to do with a refusal. A refusal to yield. Such is the, the, the power of, of unbelief. And that's something, my friends, that we need to own. That we need to own that and acknowledge our biases. You see, it's those biases in Jesus' day, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, it's those biases that served as a barrier to belief. Right in Jesus' own context. That's the power of it. We need to acknowledge the biases of our own heart and own them. Own them. This is Jesus' message to us. It's the woe that's pronounced unto us if we will not hear and heed Him in this way. Again, let me just come back around the other side of the barn, so to speak. We're talking in the big picture about the fittedness of His response to ours. The fittedness of His response to ours. To, To John, in his doubt... Jesus responded with patience and compassion to those who were were beyond just skeptical but but settled in their unbelief. He responded with this pronouncement of of a warning and and a woe. But please don't misunderstand. It's not as though Jesus is responding to John with compassion and to the rest in some other way. That's not it. He's responding to both with compassion, but that compassion has to be expressed in different ways because of where each party was and, and what they needed and what they needed to, to hear. Now you might be saying, well, how? How, in the, I mean, how, is, how is that manifesting itself here? I mean, it seems like to me all Jesus is doing, you might be responding this way, it might be going, it's going on your head, it seems like to me all that Jesus is doing here is he's trying to scare us. He's just trying to use fear to control us, an intimidation tactic to get us to change. My friend, that, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the heart works. Deep change and transformation never comes by fear. Ask an experienced parent. <laughs> Deep change and transformation never comes by fear. It comes by love. It comes by knowing that you are loved and there's devotion there and passion and compassion there. Well, then you say, okay, fine. Well, then how do you see such love here? How do you see such, such compassion in this Jesus and what he's saying and how harshly it seems like that he's, he's, he's saying? Well, you see it in the price that he pays. You see it in the cost that he bore. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great uh, pastor, preacher from 20th century, um, 
Great Britain, London, uh, used to put it this way. It's a great way of illustrating this point. He said, now imagine a, a friend uh, comes to you and says, look, hey, you, know, you don't know this, but I was at your house earlier today, and a bill collector came by, and I paid it for you. Just wanted you to know. And so you're kind of like, well, how should I respond? You see, you don't know how to respond to your friend until you know how much they paid, until how much the bill was that had come due and how much they then paid for you. So, you know, was it, was it just a postage charge? Like, you know, 20, 30 cents or something like that? Was that, you know, it wasn't quite enough on, on the envelope? Was that what we're talking about? Um, or, or was it, I mean, if that's the case, you would just say, well, you know, thank you. Move on. Forget about it. But, but maybe it wasn't so much that. Maybe it was like 10 years of back taxes. You know, some insurmountable debt that you could never have hoped to or, you know, beyond debt to pay. See, you don't know how to respond until you know how much was due and how much they paid for you. You don't know whether to say just casually thank you and shake their hand or fall down at their feet and kiss their feet. How much did Jesus pay? How much was due? How much was owed? An eternal debt. An eternal debt. Owed by us as flawed moral agents before a holy God. And he pays this debt in full. In full. With his own blood. And so the, the offer then is extended to us here this morning by one spoken in love. Hear what I'm saying, even as he's giving the warning. This one who loves you. This one who pronounces these woes and has demonstrated that love. Oh so richly and oh so powerfully in full and paying this debt that we owe, all of us, in full. This offer then extend for any and everyone here, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. If you will but come to Him and turn to Him and give up your self-righteousness and your self-dependence and look to Him. Look to Him. Repent. Hear the dirge. Trust in Him. Hear the dance. Follow Him with your whole life. Jesus' response to our response, you see, is fitted to our response to Him. And that's the way He responds to us, even in our unbelief. That offer. Oh, would you hear? Oh, would you heed? Let's pray. Lord, this news is better, far, far better than I, in even any poor way, any of us here could possibly sketch out. It is far, far better than we can describe, than we can know, than we can imagine. And it is precisely what we need to hear and to embrace. All of that said, we confess here that we are hard of hearing. 
The soil of our hearts is crusty, stubbornly unyielding. Lord Jesus, for those here who are believers, we ask that you would help us to daily remember, to daily remember the two sides of this message, the dirge and the dance, the the bad news and the good news. And then would you increase our love for you and each other, growing out of the soil of that. Lord Jesus, for those of us here who that's really not where we are, help them to hear. We all have biases. Help them to own theirs and be willing to consider your claim on their lives. Help them to know the reality of these things, the historicity of these events and these words, the significance and the implication of all these things. And may it strike a deep chord, eternally so, in a personal way. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your compassion. Thank You for Your mercy that is shown in Your words to us even strong words. Yours is anything but indifference. We certainly cannot ever accuse you of not caring. We pray in your name. Amen. If I may ask my fellow elders to join me down front, we are now going to take some time here at the close of our service, but at a most significant point of our service in the celebration of the supper. Some of you know the... uh, no, I don't know, a little over two years ago, um, I had the opportunity to visit Israel and we spent some time there in Jerusalem. And-